Hi, I'm Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Chris White, the CTO of Prefect. Chris began his journey into data tooling while he was getting his PhD in mathematics at the University of Texas at Austin. He then became a data science manager at Capital One and joined Prefect as the first employee in 2018. Chris has been a teacher, a researcher, a data scientist, a software engineer, a sales engineer, and a security officer, just to name a few things. And these experiences feed into his leadership at Prefect. He's a fellow surfer, so it was good to run into each other in the data space. Chris, it's so great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I, I know I just gave like a little brief bio of yourself, but I'd love to hear in your words. Like, What was your journey to get to Prefect today? So a little kind of long and circuitous, but uh, starts basically when I was in grad school. So I got my PhD in math at UT Austin under uh, Rachel Ward. And the work that we were doing was definitely uh, theoretical. So it was pure math, but it was related to kind of signal processing, compressed sensing and, and optimization. And so it was right around the time when a lot of people were leaving academia to go into like finance and machine learning. And so, you know, of course, I got a little interested and our work was very related to a lot of the research going into that. So I started coding a little bit more, kind of getting in the weeds there and then doing some consulting for various, did some algorithms consulting, did some actual just like managing and munging data, you know, just got interested in that. And so one of the things that, you know, I struggled with a lot when I was finishing up my PhD was whether to go industry or academia, right? That's like the big question. And I do really love math. I really love math research. I loved it all, but I did kind of find myself gravitating towards just fire hoses of problems more than kind of big picture, you know, research vision. And so industry, especially at that time, was, you know, producing problems daily. So I made the switch and I went to Capital One as a data scientist. And it was right when Capital One was doing their big cloud migration from on-prem servers to AWS. So also got a little lucky to be a part of all that. And I got to see kind of both worlds, the old world and the new world, and what were the pain points of doing that migration. So on day one, I was you know writing white papers, building predictive models, justifying those models to regulators, like all of that fun, pure data science. But because of this transition that was happening, I ended up helping my team out a lot by just writing lots of tooling for these things. So they were on new platforms they didn't fully understand. And so I kind of helped there. I was teaching courses about some of this stuff, which is just really cool thing that Capital One lets people do. And so anyways, long story short, I got deeper and deeper into actually just writing software that helped unlock efficiencies in data teams, whether it was data science or business analysts or data engineers. And by the time I left Capital One, I was on a team that was building a platform that kind of connected data scientists and the you know finished models that they would build to business analysts who would then interact with those models with a Python SDK that we built on a platform that we maintained. And so that's kind of, you know, you can kind of see the like early seeds of the kind of user experience that we care about. A prefect is like making sure that both the highly technical users can get what they need out of it, but also making sure that people who aren't, you know, classically considered super technical can interact with it. So anyways, during that time, got really involved in open source and the Python world, Dask in particular, and that is how I ended up meeting Jeremiah, who's the founder and CEO of Prefect. And he hadn't started the company yet. He was just kind of playing around with this idea. He used to be on the Airflow PMC. He hadn't, he was at the time when he was experimenting with this. And he had built this tool for himself because Airflow just wasn't meeting his needs. It wasn't scalable enough. The scheduler just fell over all the time. 
And he needed a lot more just kind of ad hoc parameterized interactions with his workflows. Like that's, you know, a hallmark, I think, of data science is it's not really like a batch thing. It's just something happens. It could just be me wanting to run an experiment and I want to see the output, throw some parameters in. And he had come across my Dask work. He wanted to make sure Dask was a first class citizen. People could, you know, write highly scalable workflows. So we started kind of pairing together a little bit. And, you know, next thing you know, he's like, hey, I'm starting a company and love for you to join as kind of the founding engineer. And you know, made the switch. It was right when I was moving to California too. So just like a ton of things were changing. So that's always a little, a little scary, but definitely never looked back. It was an awesome decision. It's been a fun, wild ride ever since. That's awesome. It's so interesting to me to see, there's like a handful of companies, Capital One being one of them. Not one people think of as like really like tech forward, but I, I mean, I know, and you obviously know, like some of these companies are really, really good at this stuff. They've been doing it forever. They have a lot of resources invested in doing data science and machine learning uh, well. And arguably, their problem space is even harder. Like you said, regulators. Like I know like what yeah. goes into that. Like we have users who we have to deal with with that stuff, and it's not easy. That's kind of... I have a theory about Capital One, actually. Just Ooh, uh, I'm that ready. I think is one of those things that surprises people. Capital One is still founder-led. Rich Fairbanks was the founder of the company and is still the CEO. And I think that really like translates to the kind of culture that they have where like, you know, he still just cares a lot about what he's doing. It's not just a, a CEO job to him. I didn't know that either. I know they're like relatively new compared to the banks. Right. Obviously, I mean, like JP Morgan, like is, is long gone. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, that makes sense. I think this is true. There's a lot of companies I learned recently about like Intuit's like founder is still the CEO. Oh, interesting. So yeah, and I hear Argo came out of Intuit, right? So yeah, there's a lot of these companies that like, and I guess in that case, like the, the CEO is also technical. Like, so it's like, uh, yeah. like not what you'd expect, you know, but it does dramatically shift culture when yeah. leadership is, you know, remembers those days and like remembers building it up. That's crazy. That's cool. What do you think the biggest shift has been from like being in kind of the belly of the machine, <laughs> like Capital One to like being kind of, you know, the first employee at a, a small startup, which obviously is not much bigger. Yeah. So you learn a lot, a lot quicker, right? Just because you have to, there's just a lot of stuff happening and you have to move quickly. I think probably the biggest thing though, is the ambiguity that you have to face day to day in a startup, right? Even if you're an engineer and not necessarily in leadership, just there's an infinite number of things you could probably do. And all of them are not very well specified and they all kind of require a little bit of intuition and just navigating that, like whether it's prioritizing something, picking the right design for something, whether or not to introduce a feature that a user requests, because you don't know if that kind of shifts what your product focus is. Like all of that stuff is not stuff you really have to deal with when you're in a larger company, right? Like all of the initiatives get kind of handed down to you and like maybe your team, you know, you get obviously some creativity, but with this, it's like, you know, the world's your oyster. You can technically do anything. It's a really good point. I, I remember because I've been a founder. It's my second company. So I've been the founder for nice longer than I haven't been a founder in terms of my like career. And I'm so used to ambiguity, but it was so, it almost like took a while for me to understand why you wouldn't be, like why that's hard. Right. And so I have to actually <laughs> like kind of learn how to think from the perspective of someone who like doesn't crave that. Like when I saw ambiguity, I'm like, cool, that's opportunity. Like I'm going to run that way. Exactly, exactly. But it's uh, definitely... Uh, it stresses some people out. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think it stresses everyone out until you kind of get used to it. 
and you just start to think differently. Like I'm very like North Star oriented. Like what are we trying to do here? And like, let's just frame every problem that's positioned. So like, if we don't know what to do, well, what like seems like it's like making our North Stars, you know, aims at our North Star, let's just do that. And then we can figure it out later if we're wrong. Yeah, and I, I think that part too is really key. And I always like to kind of talk about this is being comfortable just being wrong and knowing that when you're making a decision, it doesn't have to be completely right. You know, it just has to be like directionally correct. And that's usually enough so that you can make some progress, iterate on it later, like figure out if it was wrong, retrace your steps, but you just have to get comfortable with that. And so one of the things like I always tell our engineers and it's in our tech standards, it's just like saying, I don't know is important. Say it all the time. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's funny that even you saying that, cause I'm so used to like, as a founder, like you're wrong most of the time, you know? And yeah, so, right. like, <laughs> It's uh, something you're completely used to. It's almost like when things are, when you're right too many times, like I've had this happen where I'm like, everything's going well. And that's yeah. freaking me out. <laughs> like, right, right. Oh and it puts you in a bad mood. You're like, this can't be true. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, like, oh, like the house is too quiet. Like, where are the kids? Or where's the dog? You know, type right, thing. right. <laughs> There's no birds outside. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's maybe really get back into orchestration. You mentioned Jeremiah was, already working on airflow orchestration is not a new problem i mean arguably the most used orchestrator in the world is cron mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh maybe first like uh, could you kind of describe the problem space and also maybe define like why is it hard why are there so many orchestrators like obviously the problem's hard to solve but i don't think it's obvious to everyone why yeah it's it's tricky so orchestration just as a word i don't think actually defines the space at all Easy example there, Kubernetes is a container orchestrator, right? But Kubernetes is not competitive with Prefect. We run everything on Kubernetes. Our users do too. It's great. And so orchestration is just about managing the life cycle and dependencies of some unit of compute. And so Kubernetes cares a lot about right compute resources and container runtimes and like scheduling those from a resource perspective, restarting them if something is going on, checking in on their health in various ways and like giving you ways to configure all of that. I think that is one of the things that makes the space challenging is defining your world and how you're going to approach it is really hard because you could kind of theoretically do anything. And so I think another part of orchestration and one of the reasons I don't always think of Cron exactly as an orchestrator, although I mean, I know people do, is that especially nowadays, it's a lot about gluing together dependencies between lots of systems and getting observability into all of those kind of interactions. Like Cron only knows about a single, basically a CLI entry point, right? And it doesn't know anything about dependencies or anything else that's all baked into your code. And it doesn't help you remove any code related to that. So I think an orchestrator does somehow help you kind of remove like trigger logic for you know, when this thing should run makes that really easy, helps you manage the fact that this should always run after this and like see that dependency enforced in, you know, a dashboard somewhere. And then just like gluing together all of these different runtime environments or tools or APIs or webhooks, whatever it is that you happen to be gluing together. That's kind of where orchestrators live. But like, like I said, that's just such a huge space that that's what makes it hard. And I think the thing that people get wrong a lot of the time in orchestration is, and one of the reasons I think there's so many tools in this space right now, is they misidentify the output of a workflow as the thing being orchestrated. And so, for example, I see people call themselves like a data orchestrator. And if you look at it, the only thing they're governing 
is some piece of Python logic. That's not orchestrating data because you don't have full control over that data. You don't, it's just an output of the workflow. And I think that can be really misleading, I think, to users because they probably get more confidence than they should in what the tool is actually doing. And I think that's like one of the things that we just really lean into. If you know, go read anything that we produce, we always talk about kind of how open-ended we try to keep the system. And it's like really about orchestrating Python runtimes, you know, functions, scripts, containers even, but like, and it just so happens that Python is like one of the most popular tools for everything involved with data. Obviously, a lot of kind of our hooks and everything are geared towards data practitioners, data engineers, and data scientists, all of our like pre-can tasks, et cetera. But we still kind of at the end of the day, think of ourselves as a Python orchestrator. And that's like, that's our universe. I really like that you mentioned like life cycle. I think that's kind of a key point here. Like every... There's a lot, like we could be considered an orchestrator. Like some people are like, oh, you're like an orchestrator. And I'm like, I mean, if it helps your mental model, like we're an orchestrator plus metadata specifically focused on the feature engineering lifecycle. That's the crucial part is more you choose your lifecycle. And like you said, if you pick your lifecycle, there are things that you know to be true. Like in our world, we know that features are used for training and for inference. So we can shortcut and abstract away some of the, kind of generic logic of making that happen. And that's where we become more valuable. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Is that is that fair? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's 100% fair. And then when you do that, when you're in, for example, the feature engineering space, it's important to connect it to the fact that it gets used in like these models or whatever the case may be. But you wouldn't call yourself a model orchestrator because that's kind of where you know your governance crosses some boundary. And all you can do now is observe what happens afterwards. Another way that I like to think about it is like, what code does that tool let you avoid writing? And I think, you know, that's another thing, the reason I think data orchestration, when I see some people call themselves that, I don't think quite makes sense because you're still writing just as much code about your data. It's your Python runtime that might get cleaned up a little bit. And so you're not really orchestrating data. So just to be super clear in like the prefect case, like what is the code that they wouldn't be writing, a user of prefect? Yeah, so it's anything at all related to operationalizing and tracking that code over time. So starting with, you know, where does the code even live? Like it's in this GitHub repository on this branch. That's the thing I care about. You know, I want to schedule it to run at these times. And with each of those runs, I want these parameter values to get passed. I want to track those values in that configuration that got passed. I want it to sometimes run maybe in this remote cluster, sometimes on my laptop, and I want to know which runs ran in those different places. I want to make sure that it's more resilient than maybe you could have written. So for example, just like restarting it if the process dies or if Kubernetes evicts a pod or something like that. That's more things. You have to write something bigger than Kubernetes to tap into. Like our agent will will manage that for you. And then I think a big piece of it is all of the observability that kind of comes with this, right? You have code, you want to put it in the world, and you want to confirm that it's doing the things that you expect it to do within the timeframes or SLAs that you care about. And that can get tricky really quickly. Like all of the logs you have to ingest, you have to be able to search them, correlate them with errors, look at tracebacks, you know, just get alerts if schedules are delayed. And all of that stuff is something I always talk about as like emergent complexity. Each individual slice of that feels easy, 
Well, after four months of building that system, all of a sudden you get all these feature requests and things. And like all you're doing now is building an orchestration system. You're not doing data engineering anymore. Yeah. And, and you, you all decided to go open source. So it also kind of solves the problem of like, well, like, you know, if you have something we don't do, you can always contribute it. But chances are we exactly. already do it. <laughs> so like, why, why exactly. reinvent the wheel? <laughs> like you said, like you're not a data orchestrator, you're a Python runtime orchestrator. You mentioned one of the key differences in those thinking of those two things is observability. Is that what is the key differences and thinking of yourself? Like, what does that allow you to do being a Python runtime orchestrator versus a data orchestrator? So I don't think there is like a true, I think maybe DBT is the closest thing to like a data orchestrator where it actually kind of helps you track these dependent, you know, SQL statements that you're writing and like how all of the pieces fit together. But data, like I think so this gets, I guess, into a lot of different things, but so I don't even think data orchestration is really a thing that anyone's doing at all right now. And I think it's a really hard problem. And in order to really do it, you have to gain some amount of control over like data sources, syncs, and all of the different databases that, that people are using. And that's just a hard kind of platform problem to solve and to get people to, to buy into. And what focusing on being just like a Python, let's say function orchestrator, allows us to do is first and foremost, satisfy a million different use cases. So we have people who use our product for like just replacement Fairflow, standard ETL, batch jobs, just scheduling that stuff to data scientists doing kind of ML ops type of work where they're doing some you know basic experiment tracking, lots of really ad hoc job runs. So like totally different paradigm running in like these really large, oftentimes DAS clusters and increasingly Ray clusters and managing managing that. And so like that's just a scale that a lot of other data orchestrators don't really satisfy because data doesn't typically break down into 200,000 units the way a data science job might. And then we also have people who use us for like lots of random other things. We have some people who have used us for CICD, right? Why not? It, we manage dependencies between jobs and alert you on failure. That's a lot of what CICD is. We have other people who, we have one, one customer who set us up as this kind of automated onboarding workflow system for employees. I don't totally understand it. I haven't seen the code, but like, it's just a business use case. It's not, you know, anything else. And like, and that's okay. Our bread and butter, definitely data engineering, data science, focusing on just that generic kind of Python structure gives us the opportunity to satisfy all of these other things, which is really cool. Yeah, I th that's really interesting. And I think that really like highlights it. Like I, I think especially the last one, the onboarding tool, like that's not right. in any way like a data, data it's just, it's truly just an, an orchestration problem. Like it's just defining your workflow. On that point, I think to kind of just separate us a little bit more, a data orchestrator most likely is going to make an assumption that all of your tasks or whatever they call them have outputs, right? And that already puts you in a different world. Whereas like this other, you know, this, this onboarding tool, I'm not totally sure if it has outputs. I think it's just like a check mark that the run is associated with this person and you kind of go through a sequence of tasks, but they don't necessarily have outputs. They just succeed or they don't. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I know, I know I, I kind of talking to you, say Lacron is an orchestrator. I know it's, it's, it's more of a, like a hack together way to do it that people have been doing for a while. Airflow is, I mean, I know it's Airbnb, so it's not super old, but it's not new. <laughs> it's pretty old. It's almost a decade old at this point. Yeah, it's it's. So I guess my question is like, why now with Prefix? Has something changed, or was it more of that just took this long until someone actually built a better system? 
or was did something happen recently that you think kind of drove the need for something like Prefect? That's a really good question. I don't think that there's a really specific event necessarily. I think one of the big things, challenges that we observed, at least when we started Prefect, was this kind of two different worlds were happening. There's a data engineering world using Airflow, and then there's the data scientist world that had just like tons of custom stuff around all of their model builds and how they tracked all of that and bridging that gap so that both teams, you know, if they were on separate teams, maybe could speak the same language and talk about the tool in a common way. And then like actually share code with each other that connects those different pipelines in a meaningful way. I would just say that need is definitely was one of the motivating needs that we started with when we were building these things. And then also letting people manage their kind of compute environment more, just more than Airflow does. So it like, I'm trying to think of, of an example, just like where your tasks run and who kind of has the authority to like manage those dependencies is something that Airflow takes like a very firm ownership approach over, which means the scheduler becomes kind of the bottleneck for anything that you want to do. Whereas in our world, we will let you configure things called task runners that will say, okay, that now can manage the dependency. Our scheduler doesn't need to get involved. And then that's how you can start to scale up. So you say, oh, I have a DAS cluster. I want to run 100,000 things on it. And I want to see each one of those things in, in the UI. Easy to do. We hand over control of DAS and just make sure everything's phoning home. And so just like scale and then bridging those worlds is, I guess, my short answer. Yeah, and I wonder if that bridge kind of, the bridge is interesting because there is also kind of a new rise, obviously, in MLOps. And that that's driven by ML becoming, going outside of just like a research group in the corner and right. more of it's a... It's maturing like a, into a real thing, yeah. Yeah, we're like now every team has a data scientist. So like it's not a weird thing to have a data scientist on like a product team. And I guess that kind of... Gets me to another question. I mean, I've seen prefects show up on some of those like MLOps clouds. I've seen you on data ops clouds. Maybe yep. I'll see you on the HR cloud one of these days. Based <laughs> <laughs> right, right. on that use case. I know you don't like necessarily fit directly into one, but I'd love to hear how you think about the categorization of, of prefect. Yeah, so I genuinely think that we fit into all of those categories in the sense that if a user is using Prefect in that context to solve a problem, then like in a very real sense, we do become an MLOps solution. And there are ways, you know, that you can use us in that way and we support it. And like, I think there's a future state in which we do create a little bit more specialization so that, you know, the dashboards become a little bit more meaningful and you don't have to set up so much metadata. I, you know, just going back to the Python thing, I kind of joke that we're a Python ops tool. And because people write machine learning in Python a lot, we become an ML ops tool. Because people manage data pipelines, we become a data ops tool, et cetera. I think on those two categories, though, something that, you know, especially whenever we set up this conversation, everything that I was thinking a lot about is just ML ops versus data ops. And like, what do those two even categories mean? ML ops, I think, is relatively clear, right? It is all about managing the life cycle of a model build and deployment from experimentation, ingestion of data, you know, tracking all of your training to deploying it somewhere that it can actually be used and then making sure that like your inputs aren't drifting over time. Like there's, it's a very well-defined world. It's a lot of stuff, of course, but 
uh, and it's a closed world in the sense that right, you own the inputs and can kind of manage everything about it. Whereas data ops is such a huge kind of category and it's a completely open system. And what I mean by that is, right, the data that comes into your universe like starts out, you can't control that at all. It's completely out of your control. And then how people interact. Like when you're in a machine learning world, you have like a finite list of tools and places you're going to run stuff. You know, you might need GPUs or something like that. So like you're always over here running in that place where people can track costs. But with data ops, there is a million and one different ways to, for example, get access to a database, run a query, get the output of that query and do stuff with it. You might, you know, not go through your platform and actually just connect directly to your database, download the results as a CSV. And now they're kind of outside of the scope of anything. And so like, it's such an open system that I think data ops becomes a really hard category to both define and ever like have a tool that owns it in any way. Whereas MLOps, you know, obviously has an explosion of tools in it. It's funny. I have a very similar view. And I actually think that the accepted view, like the more common view, well, there's two common views I see. One is that they're two separate things. One is that MLOps is actually a subset of data ops. But I had Stefan on the show a little while back now, and he was like, GitOps is a subset of MLOps. <laughs> I think it was a little bit of like just to, you know, I think it was exaggerating. Just for a take, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think what you're saying is probably closer to true, and I think kind of what he was getting at, which is going back to the lifecycle comment you made. Like there is an ML lifecycle. There's kind of a data lifecycle, but it's like, Really it's dependent cool. on use case. It's more like anal- like it almost feels like there should be analytics ops and, and ML ops and like that kind yes. of thing. And data ops is a more generic layer, but it also like is so generic that it's almost not really a, a defined problem. It's just kind of like generic plugins that maybe ML ops tools and, and analytic ops tools should use. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that we're doing to try to you know, like I'm not gonna, I don't wanna say we're going into the data ops, but I mean, people already think that we're in data ops, but to try to address this kind of like open endedness of, of that system is we have this concept of a spectrum, the coordination spectrum is what we call it. And it goes from orchestration where you actually like own critical state of a workflow, maybe it's its schedule, maybe it's the outputs of it, whatever the case, the code itself, and you control that to the observability side where you're very much a passive consumer of information and you just organize that information in intuitive, interesting ways. And then you can connect these two things, right? You can say, whenever I observe or don't observe these things, then do this stuff, which then puts you on the orchestration side. And the reason I'm talking about that is one of our goals here is for people to have basically like endpoints where they can send information, like time series, things that are happening in their data stack and be able to see it kind of side by side with a lot of their kind of running managed processes in the orchestration layer. And like we've designed the schema and everything to be very open-ended. So you can kind of just, for example, say like this query is being run by this person on this database in this table. Now this query, you could just kind of fire hose that stuff at us. We'll then put together a worldview of like, oh, so you have this database and it has these tables and these users interact with those tables. And here it all is for you. And maybe one of your workflows starts failing and then you can see, oh, this user ran a really long running query right before that workflow failed. Let me reach out to them and see if they did something weird or let me go look at the query or whatever. But kind of having this like 
observability API is what we're calling it. We're trying to just like help people organize a lot of this open-endedness in one, one centralized place. Would you say that in general, you orient towards keeping things like keeping the API simple or adding more functionality? Yeah, we try really hard sometimes to a fault to keep the API as like always just building blocks and then clients then have to implement logic on top of them. So like our UI, for example, will like patch together four different endpoints just to create like a restart button or something like that. It's just like a design bias yeah. that we have. Well, it makes sense. And I almost like predicted that you were going to say that just based on everything else you said, because it's, I know it's a very different company, but it kind of, I get like Airtable vibes. Like it's almost like a spreadsheet is like this generic abstraction where if you did it really, really well, like a lot of use cases could just use it. Like you don't need like, you know, a specialized tool for everything. And so in your case, it's like, hey, this idea of an orchestrator, I know like an orchestrator, it's not a well-defined thing, but a Python orchestrator and like a framework in Python to define things and have things run, like that's, if done well, is general enough where it kind of solves such a wide variety of problems that if you do it simple, or I've been finding some very overly customized tool for the job, just use Prefect and make it work for you. Is that a fair takeaway? 100% fair. And that's the way that we always even kind of try to pitch it is that we can grow with your use cases and with your your team's focus. Like you don't have to worry too much about that sort of lock-in. This is super fascinating. I, I like feel like I uh, I personally learned a lot <laughs> from this. I, I you know I think I would have awesome. definitely been guilty of calling Prefect a data ops tool before this conversation. And I'd love to just end of like a, let's say you know if you had to, someone listen to this like me, they're like this is awesome. Or like I need to go tell my team about this. They need to go give a two sentence tweet, pitch, whatever. Like, what do you think the, the tweet lane takeaway of this conversation should be? Oh, wow. This, so this is the most challenging question that, that you've asked because I'm terrible at Twitter. <laughs> and I, I talk a lot if you haven't noticed. So I think if you, anyone who finds themselves wanting to operationalize some Python code should check us out. And one of the things, so this is getting away from tweet link, but one of the things that we have really focused on in our 2.0 push is this idea of incremental adoption. And what, what I mean by that is how much prefect code you should have to write, care about, and the concepts you need to know should be you know, proportional to how complicated of a use case or like sublinear even and like how it scales with it. And so one thing that you can use prefect for is if you're already running a script on cron, you can drop one line code change that just decorates your main entry point function. And now you just have a dashboard that you can use to look at to see, you know, what your failures are, when your thing's running, when's it succeeding, et cetera. And like you already now get a little bit of metadata with a fun dashboard on top of it, all just using the open source. You don't have to stand up any infrastructure to do this. It's all like happening for you. And it's like so, layering, layering observability essentially on top of an existing orchestrator. Exactly, exactly. And then next thing you know, you're going to want to layer in some retries. And now you're starting to, you know, move into the prefect world. But like, doesn't have to be data. Any type of Python code you're trying to operationalize. That's great. And you have an open source repo, but I'll, I'll include the link to it so people can check it out. Awesome. Yep. And uh, this has been great. Chris, thanks so much for hopping on to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. <laughs>